The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, the publishers of the famous fell walking series the Pictorial Guide to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary writing in both the UK and around the world. What We Need to Do Now for a Zero Carbon Society by Chris Goodall is designed to help all of us in the UK work together to avert the climate emergency and achieve our pledge to be carbon neutral by 2050. Drawing on actions, policies and technologies already emerging around the world, this is an urgent, practical and inspiring book that signals a green new deal for Britain. Chris, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So you've been listed under the global conservation and climate change uh, section of the prize on, on that shortlist. And that's quite interesting because your book is quite unlike many of the others on the shortlist. Um, it's sort of part handbook, if you like, and part manifesto. Why did, why did you feel you needed to write it now? Why does one need to re- write books at a particular point? I, I do, I'm not absolutely certain I know the answer to that. What, but there is a widespread sense today across the community, very large fraction of the total population of the UK now subscribe to the idea that we need to do something seriously about climate change. We need to do, as a country, uh, we need to get to net zero as fast as we conceivably can. I'll say just briefly what net zero is. Uh, at the moment, we're emitting huge amounts of carbon dioxide, four or 500 million tonnes a year from the activities in this country. To get to net zero means we need to reduce that to zero. That means stopping burning fossil fuels entirely, or almost entirely. We need to change our dietary habits. Uh, we need to stop methane, uh, a, a strong global warming gas getting into the atmosphere, and a variety of other things. We need to take that down to zero. And if we can't take it down to zero, we need to compensate for the amounts that remain going into the atmosphere with uh, activities that extract carbon dioxide in compensating amounts from the atmosphere itself. And that means planting more trees or directly extracting, taking out carbon dioxide from the air around us. Uh, so net zero is the target. 2050 is what it has to happen or uh, probably before and we'll, we'll find out. Um, but you asked me about why I wrote it. Now I wanted to give people the sense that this target, which looks so difficult, is actually very attainable. It requires society to change, really change quite a lot. But it doesn't mean to, make, to mean that we are poorer or um, less, uh, we have less satisfying and enjoyable lives. Uh, we can do it. We have the technical resources to do it. And we need to do it as quickly as possible. Because you're an economist by background, aren't you? So you're looking at it perhaps from that frame of somebody who, who I want to say detached, but has a very strong um, logical scientific type of background. So your book is, well, it's a, well, it's, he- he- 
you know, listing the chapters such as, you know, green energy and electric transport, they seem like very practical, sensible solutions, but they're actually intensely political, small p, and, and quite emotive in some ways, aren't they? Oh, so yeah. you, you're blending Indeed. that, you know, the science eye with the, with the non-science eye. Gosh, it was difficult to write in that respect because I wanted to not to avoid the political controversies that are inherent in this move to net zero, but also not to say this is the dominant feature. You know, we must do this because it fits in with some form of political ideology. So I was trying to give a sense that there might be a route, and yes, there would be problems which we would need to negotiate as a community. The book is inherently about the UK and pretty much only about the UK, uh, but these were solvable problems and we needed to do so within a, a strong and continuing democratic dialogue. But yes, look, I, I, I come at this, this, this as, uh, as an analyst, someone who likes numbers, who works with spreadsheets every day of the week, uh, but it's an attempt nevertheless to give this uh, a personal field. So there are, I hope, hundreds of stories about different individuals working their way towards a zero carbon future in the book. It covers people in Orkney who are trying to use hydrogen uh, to, to store energy. It covers John Letts, who's trying to produce a different way of growing grains in our destructive, intensely destructive grain-growing agricultural system at the moment, and so on. There are, I hope, enough stories to make it interesting. But in the background, and I hope it's very much in the background, is a structure which comes from the fact that I think, as, I, I think in numbers. Um, that, I, that must make it seem a very unattractive book to read. I hope I've avoided that. But it, give, it give, gave me the way uh, to think about um, constructing the book, creating it, writing it in the first place. It's because it's not a numbers-heavy book, but you're right. We need we need the numbers because we need the, the 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 baseline and the science behind this, don't we? To to encourage everybody to get on board with the conversation because I think what so often happens is that and I'm sure with a lot of other of the kind of shortlisted books you know there's very much the 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 emotive call to action um we can connect with them very quickly because they're about bees or yeah. vanishing landscapes or sure. you know the changing world around us but actually this stuff is hard some of this stuff is hard it requires us to make difficult challenging and in some cases um well small small sacrifices but certainly in some cases sacrifices about how we live our lives now because yeah. we have to change yeah. so that that sense that there's a numbers and thought behind it i think is hugely reassuring actually because this isn't somebody sticking a finger in the air and saying right we'll do this it's actually somebody who understands yeah. the science that's driving yeah. the change yeah, it is difficult because people want little case histories. Um, they don't necessarily want to read a, an overstructured book, which gives, um, which says, if we do this, we have achieved 13.34% of our target. Um, I've written books like that before, and that appeals to a certain type of person, normally with an engineering background, to be honest. But I wanted to widen it to, to be interesting to the hundreds of thousands of community climate change activists around the UK. And I've been on the Extinction Rebellion marches and sit-downs and so on and so forth. And talking to the people on those, I wanted to talk, I want to talk to the people who go on those demonstrations, who put their own lives, I'm putting it a little bit strongly, not lives at risk, but who were who risking arrest and incarceration as a result of taking non-violent action. So I want to give a little handbook, which is useful to those people, um, and entertaining to read. And do you feel, given that perspective that you bring, that actually a lot of our journey to net zero will be achieved 
at a community level? I mean, is it is that where the change is coming? Obviously, we need policy, and we need law, and we need innovation and technology. But do you feel a lot of the change will come from the community? That's a very interesting question, isn't it? And it's, it, it would be nice to think that because it would help bind a fractured set of communities together. We, we have divide, we have become more divided as a society in, the, in my lifetime, dramatically more divided. And it would be good to think that this challenge could help bring us together. Let's take some examples of that. Um, over the last four months, five months, we've seen a push towards active transport, that is to say walking and cycling rather than taking our private car to the shop a kilometre away. Um, and the, the walking and cycling movements around UK cities have certainly brought communities together. But on the other hand, it hasn't stopped um, the fundamental division between those people who think that climate change is so important that we need to take action to ban private cars or to diminish their use significantly, and those people who are very reluctant to give up the freedom they have at the moment to travel when and where they want. And in the town in which I live, Oxford, that's always right at the centre of all the debates. Yes, it would be nice to think that community action is helping push Oxfordshire towards a more active transport policy. But at the same time, I feel that there's no sign yet that we've begun to act uh, as a, an entirely unified community to pursue that aim. But look, I, I give lots of talks to, via Zoom, of course, these days, to community groups around the country. They are in, incredibly hardworking. I am so struck by this. And they are beginning to be effective, not least because politicians now realise they represent a strong majority of the electorate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's incredibly important. I mean, if we can band together as communities, our voices are much stronger and louder. And, and that, that is an important push for getting those policy changes. And, and I'm intrigued to see that some of the chapters in the book are very, you know, very sort of community people focused. They're about fashion or food or things that, that, that we would perhaps look at in our own lives. But then you've, 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 you've sprinkled in some challenging chapters around carbon taxation and geoengineering and things. So you're not, a, you're not afraid of, of, of straying <laughs> well, into uh, to, to uh, policy and, and superstructure infrastructure. Uh, uh, I, I apologise for this, but you can't. No, don't. Someone who's trained, there's only one thing which every economist in the world agrees on. Uh, and I'm only slightly exaggerating there. And that is the importance of using taxation to make the transition happen. <clears throat> we shouldn't be frightened of this. It's a, it, it's a way that minimises the impact on personal freedom from the transition to a zero carbon world by saying, if you use carbon, you must pay for that, for the external impacts of that. The fact that the atmosphere has now become a less satisfactory place for everybody else in the world. You should pay for that. So there's a, there's a fairness element to this. It's very effective at persuading people to change their behaviour, for manufacturers and other people to do things differently. Um, but yes, it looks a little strange uh, sitting alongside a chapter on fashion and how we, um, how we need to use different fabrics, consume less, make sure that the fabrics are structured to allow continued reuse and so on and so forth. But, but taxation is an important tool, isn't it? And alongside taxation comes carbon budgeting. And we, we demand of our government that there's a carbon budget. budget. So perhaps it's sensible to demand of ourselves that we have a personal carbon budget. And that way we can allow people yeah. Yeah. individual yeah. freedom and autonomy to make their choice and choose how they spend their budget yeah. alongside a system that actually says if you overspend your budget, then you will be duly taxed. Yeah. So, yeah. so those seem to me to be yeah. both carrot and stick measures that yeah. work together. 
Yeah, indeed. I mean, there are some, you know, there are lots of things in the book which are not going to be easy for society, modern society to cope with. I think it's almost certain that we will need to fly very much less. Um, perhaps that's less unenvisageable than it would have been six months ago, but um, we are, the aviation is probably the most difficult thing to decarbonize because you need a liquid fuel in the aircraft, otherwise you don't have enough power for each unit of weight you've added to the aircraft on its as its takeoff. So making sure that, that aviation is zero carbon is the, is the ultimate challenge. And we are probably going to have to persuade people, particularly in this country, which has one of the highest rates of aviation use in the world, possibly the highest rate of any large country, um, to change their holiday habits, to change their business travel habits, and so on and so forth. This is not going to be easy. No, but I mean, aviation is a very good case in point, particularly now, isn't it? I mean, and we know that the, I think the statistics are that 75% of the flights are taken by 15% of the population. So we know that it's yeah. a small cohort, whether they're sitting in business or whether they're sitting at the, you know, upper ends of the socioeconomic scale. So so we have a, a, a target there, but, but but COVID has taught us that we can work differently, we can behave differently. No one would have wanted this acceleration to, to behaviour change to happen in the way that it did. But the evidence shows us that it's perfectly possible to conduct international business without getting on an aeroplane. That's one big advantage, isn't it? That, that, that There's no question about it. I have a feeling that we'll go back to our own ho old holiday habits. That is to say, we'll still want to travel to Spain for a couple of weeks in the summer. But there's no question business has changed dramatically because of the, uh, the rise of easy to use video conferencing and other tools. Yeah. Mm. So that's one of the small number of good effects of this dreadful pandemic. So is there, I mean, it's it's interesting because a lot of the authors we've talked to, um, we've talked about the issue of lived experience and how you reflect that in your writing. And because this book is much more, in some ways, much more practical, how does your own kind of personal lived experience and your own, you know, experience of working in these fields, how is it reflected in the book? I had a good think as to what pushed me into beginning to work on climate change about 15 years ago, uh, starting to write about it and invest in companies that were doing something. And, uh, speci I specialise a lot in, in public speaking, and so I've developed that practice over the last 15 years. What was it that made me go into this world? It was a feeling that this was the most difficult challenge that the world had ever faced. Uh, it, this really, for the, for the globe, this is something more difficult to deal with than anything we've ever seen before. Even the threat of nuclear war 40 years ago um, was simple by comparison to this. So I just got interested in it. It wasn't the experience, it's because I, it was also highly quantitative. And I, I approach everything, I'm afraid, with a sense of what the numbers are like. Um, and that makes me probably not a very good writer. But I really try to see things in quantitative terms. And this was the ultimate quantitative problem. Today, how do we stop emitting 40, 50,000 tonnes of, of greenhouse gases each year in a way that doesn't do, um, cause, particularly the poorer people of the world, to get less well off? And if I may, can I just say that about the book? Throughout the book, what I try to do is to show that reactions to climate change, the policies which we seek to pursue, absolutely need to be driven by a requirement to make society fairer. Um, we've created a pretty dreadful world for us in the UK over the last 30 or 40 years. 
people, the poor, poor people are getting poorer, lesser, less advantaged all the time. I see in climate change an opportunity to change direction there and to use our actions on climate as a means of improving the welfare of the less well off. And without it, I suspect we, we will fail and moreover, we will deserve to fail. Mm. We do know that, 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 that the climate emergency and climate change disproportionately affects the poorer and the disadvantaged and the marginalised in our world, not just in the UK, but across the globe, don't we? So, mm-hmm. so, this, so, that, so I find that a hugely hopeful message that you actually can see that we have the capacity and the opportunity to, to change mm-hmm. that and just shift that balance mm-hmm. around. Is there a, a passage or two in the book that, that you could share with us that will give readers a little well, bit of an insight as to how the book is? And hopefully, obviously, encourage them to go out and buy it because that's really important. Yes. Um, so is there something you could share with us? I can try. And um, I, I hope it works. It, it comes out of a, a couple of interviews I had with a, a truly remarkable individual. Um, he's, you know, an archaeological ecologist, a very strange mixture of academic past. He now is the UK's leading exponent of the need to take grain farming back to pretty much the way we did it in the medieval era. Now, it's very strange, but I found his work, I've continued to find his work entirely convincing. So if I may, I'll read a page and a half on this. It it follows a section when I look at um, the way in which a Spanish winemaker is changing its the way the whole way it runs its business in response to climate change, and the reason that Spanish winemaker is doing that is because wine is the canary in, in the mine here. Winemaking is the most vulnerable of all of our major agricultural industries to climate change, and the Torres family, uh, the Spanish family, is in the leadership of, of of trying to do something about this. So. I'll talk a bit, the first sentence is about the Torres family, but then I'll go on to talk about John Letts, the archaeological seed specialist. The Torres's family commitment to carbon neutrality is an example of best practice, but they are not the only pioneers, and nor are they alone in recognising the value of looking to the past for adaptation to different crops or varieties that can thrive in a changing climate. In the UK, an interesting proponent of such ideas is John Letts, a seed specialist who grows heritage varieties of grains across small holdings in the south of England. He grows mixtures of many different seeds, no longer used commercially anywhere in the world, many of them probably last harvested a hundred or more years ago. Letts's diverse heritage plants produce tall stalks up to two metres high, and their roots are often almost as deep. Indeed, if you look at a painting of agricultural life before the 20th century, you'll notice that the grain at harvest is often taller than the people wielding the sickles. Letts doesn't fertilise the fields in which the cereal grains grow, although he does plant a crop to help restore soil quality every third year. Typical yields, he tells me, are about 3.5 tonnes a hectare for his trial fields, less than half the amount gathered from a conventional field. However, Since a typical intensive cereal field only produces a wheat or barley crop in one year out of two, the difference in agricultural productivity is actually quite small, negligible. Why is this relevant to a discussion of food and climate change? 
When we meet, the first point John Metz makes to me is that his grain does not require the use of pesticides, weed killers or artificial fertilisers. So there will be little or no emissions of nitrous oxide or methane during the production process. He doesn't need to destroy weeds with herbicides because the grain grows far higher than almost all its competitors and the roots are far deeper and his grains crowd out competing plants. So there's plenty of light for the plants to grow and plenty of water in the deep soil for them to prosper. This leads on to the second point. A very deep-rooted crop is far less vulnerable to the summer droughts we have seen in the UK in recent years. If, if I may put as, a, as an interjection there, that we're absolutely seeing that this year in the UK with yields well, well below um, the figures that we've seen in, in recent years. John shows me a photograph of one of his fields, full of healthy grain, even though the surface of the field is parched and deeply cracked. His yields are unaffected, even when neighbouring farms are experiencing the effects of drought. He can avoid pesticide use because although individual grain types in his mix may be susceptible to a specific pest, the truly diverse range of grains being grown in the same field is much less vulnerable than a vast plantation of genetically identical wheat, whether grown organically or using conventional techniques. His avoidance of pest control also allows bees and other insects to flourish in the area, helping to ensure that no single creature gains dominance, thus protecting biodiversity. So, and I go on to show how, however strange it seems, this effectively medieval form of grain agriculture is much more compatible with our ambitions towards reaching net zero than conventional farming is today, both because of what John Letts has done, but also because um, it enables the recreation of biodiversity and the um, accumulation of carbon in the soil, making life, um, meaning that we can extract CO2 from the air at the same time as producing grain. Sounds like a perfect example of, of a of a shifting back and almost like a rewilding approach to 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 food production which is which is just so appealing yes. yeah how wonderful thank you so much for sharing that with us i mean i hesitate to to ask my kind of final question that i've asked of the authors which is do you have a call to action because your whole book is really a call to action but is there anything specific that you would like listeners to this to this podcast and and, and hopefully readers of the book to take away and to do what would be your 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 call for action um, this is a difficult one. People often sort of write in to me and say, what's more important, taking the actions that I can take personally to reduce my personal carbon footprint, or should I be pushing for wider um, uh, action, policy action on climate change? And I say, generally, I think the important thing is to try to live the life, your life, in a way that you want society as a whole to work. Uh, that's a sort of old Quaker way of looking at things, but I think it's absolutely appropriate to this particular challenge. So the, the, the lesson that I would want um, someone who's kind enough to read this book to take away is, yes, I've got some individual responsibility and I can do some things, but in here is a set of presumptions about the way society as a whole should work. And I want to follow that and I want to persuade others around me to live life in that way as well. Thank you, Chris. We'll be travelling, hopefully, as our colleagues in the Quaker movement would say. And, and thank you for sharing both your insight and your immense um, 
wisdom that I think is encapsulated in this book. It's been delightful to talk okay. to you. Thank you. You are so kind. Thank you very much indeed, Amanda. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. What We Need to Do Now by Chris Goodall is published by Profile Books, and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website, along with extracts. Or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can catch up with interviews with other authors and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the Stories Behind the Books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening. Thank you.